in the Gospels. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament can I find anything that says that the disciples were men of prayer. They were not evidently great prayers. They watched Jesus pray a lot, but there's really no indication that they themselves prayed. In fact, in the last hour of Jesus' greatest needs, rather than to drop to their knees, what did they do? They dropped their eyelids instead. They slept. Jesus said, couldn't you even, couldn't you even just sit around and pray with me a little while? And they all went, they're all gone. If you want to pray like Jesus prayed, you got to learn along with his disciples. Verse 2 says, when you pray, say. Give you a little English lesson here. But even though it was one disciple who said, teach us to pray, Jesus uses nothing but plural pronouns in that entire prayer. Now, while it's very important for us to learn to pray on our own, he said it's also really important that we learn to pray together. I mean, most of us come like that poor gal in the video before, thinking only about ourselves. We use all of those personal pronouns like I and me and my. But this is what the Lord's Prayer says. It says, give us, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. We also forgive. Lead us not into temptation. Well, I want to take you through the six parts of this little prayer today. We want to pray about it. Here's the very first part of this prayer. I'm calling it the paternity of prayer. And the reason I chose the word paternity is because I wanted everything here to have a P. I don't know why, but every answer is here is a P. And paternity works good here. Paternity is another way of saying, well, who's the father? Well, it starts out by saying, what, our father. And that is probably the most common term used in prayer. In fact, I counted over 70 sometimes in the Gospels, Jesus started his prayers by talking about father, dear father. In fact, the only prayer I could find in the Bible where Jesus does not use the word father, maybe I want to venture a guess where that was. The only time Jesus does not use Father in his prayer is when he's hanging on the cross and his prayer is what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only time he didn't use Father. See, this term Father indicates kind of a childlike trust. Yeah, we've got a Heavenly Father who not only is going to hear, but who really wants to hear. You know, and the more you know somebody wants to listen to you, the more apt you are to want to talk to them. It's kind of like a little kid who knows his daddy, really loves him, kind of likes to run up and jump in his daddy's lap and just blab away. That's kind of the way it is. Romans 8.15 tells us that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and it makes us his children. And then it says, and by that we learn to cry, Abba, Father. Now, the word Abba means daddy. I don't know if you ever thought about God being your daddy. Now, as such, we don't have to approach God with these big churchy words. Now, there's some people who don't like to pray out loud because they haven't got the theists and thouists down and the beseechists and the whosoeverists. You don't need those big churchy words. I mean, if my kids came up to me and said, Oh, thou great and magnificent father of mine, thy daughter... And thy son beseechest thee that thou mayest allow us to have us the carth. I would say something would seem crazy. 
He wants us to embrace him as Father, to come to him without fear. He wants us to come boldly into his presence, having the confidence that he is eager to pray. And with that, let's pray. Our Father God, we come to you this morning as your children. We praise you for allowing us to have a relationship with you. Thank you for loving us deeply and for longing to have us approach you as our daddy in prayer. Thank you for your nearness, and thank you for your involvement in our lives. Amen. Let's go on to the second one, the priority of prayer. Now, after we acknowledge God as our Father, Jesus says you also need to see your Father as holy. He says, hallowed be thy name. See, God's nature is like Daddy, but his name is holy. God is not the big guy in the sky. God is not our buddy. God is holy and God is awesome. He is the God of Israel before whom we ought to all tremble when we come into his presence. Now, how do you make something hallowed? Hallowed be thine. Well, the Greek has really two different definitions for it. One of them is to take something that's very ordinary and bring it into something that's close to something that's extraordinary to change that ordinary thing into something extraordinary. Do you get that? First Peter says this simply, you be holy because I'm holy. And so when God takes Mark and draws him closer to God, he takes the ordinary Mark and makes him extraordinary in God's sight. That's one definition. The second definition of hallow means to treat someone, uh, something or someone as set apart or separated. In other words, we take God's name and we set it apart only for holy uses. Now, with high school kids sitting up here in front, I'm going to tell you something that just really fried my french fries when I was a high school teacher. And that would be, I would walk down the hall in the morning, and I would hear, God, it's cold outside. God, we got another test today. Oh, God, what, what's wrong with that person? And I'd always want to say, amen, amen, amen. <laughs> but it was kind of an indiscriminate use of the holy name of God. He's our daddy, but like I said, he's not the big guy in the sky. God's name is a holy name. In fact, of all the attributes of Jesus, of God in the Bible, only one of them is repeated three times. Holy, 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 the Bible says. Martin Luther used to say that God's name is made holy when our doctrines, in other words, what we believe and our living, are truly Christian. See, that's where prayer begins. Before we ever get into this, what I want, we need to ask for what we should be. What should we be in light of whose presence we are in? Or do we not change at all when we come into the presence of God? I mean, two questions come to mind when I think about this prayer. I mean, this is my Father, whose name is holy. Am I approaching him with holy reverence? Do I approach God with a certain sense of awe? Do I come with a certain respect as part of my life when I pray? 
Do I then hallow his name? Do I make that name holy? Do I keep it set apart by the way I live? Let's pray. Our holy heavenly Father, we bow before your majestic presence, recognizing that as we come before you, our sins threaten to consume us. You are holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of your glory. We praise you and we prize you because of your transcendent holy name. We hallow your name because you are high and lifted up, and we hallow your name by striving to live holy lives. Amen. There's a third part of this prayer. We're going to call it the program of prayer. It says, your kingdom come. We're really saying, Almighty Father God, take control of my life and do whatever you want with my life to your glory. Now, sadly, a lot of our anemic prayers, maybe if I use that word, anemic prayers, are too often filled with my kingdom and my plans and my causes. I mean, just think about how different everything would be. Think how different you would be. Think how different the youth group would be. Think how different your families would be. Think how different this church would be. Think how different Texarkana and the surrounding areas would be if we determined to pray that God's kingdom rule would make itself known not only in our lives, but in the lives of everybody that we come into contact with. Now, that word kingdom in the Greek means to rule or reign. I mean, your kingdom come, ask that God take up reigning residence in your hearts. That's why you hear me sometimes talk about the Holy Spirit being the resident president. God has taken up residence. He is reigning inside of a Christian's life. Now, there are at least three aspects. You see them up on the screen of praying. I mean, what are you praying about when you're saying, thy kingdom come? Well, one of them is conversion. We should pray that all people everywhere would bow before Jesus and get saved. I don't know the answer to this question, but I'd be interested to talk to all of you. Did anybody, I'm not talking about in this group, but do you think that anybody that went to the National Lutheran Youth Gathering got saved at that event? I think that would be possible. Well, you say, well, hold it, we were all Lutherans. Lutherans don't need to be converted. There's a Greek word for that, too. Hogwash. <laughs> or the Hebrew, baloney. Lutherans need to be converted, too. They need to come to a living relationship with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I have been to Christian events over and over and over again where I have seen people who, when they came in, said, Well, yeah, I believe in Jesus but who walked the aisle and actually said, I will bow before him. He is my king. He is my Lord. He is going to reign in my life, and my life's going to be different. Happens all the time. The second one is commitment. I mean, we, we say, thy kingdom come. We're really saying, God, because you're king, I want you to do whatever you want to do in my life, and I want you to do whatever you want to do in the life of other people. The third one is consummation. I, so if I'm going to use all these P's, I've got to use all these C's. Now, consummation is a fancy word, which really means that someday God is going to crack the sky, 
the angels are going to come, the horns are going to blow, and God is going to come back and he's going to take all of his people back with him. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Now, how do you get qualified to even pray this prayer? I mean, for you to be able to say, thy kingdom come, how do you qualify to even pray that prayer? Number one, it's by changing citizenship through what? Conversion. You move out of this world into God's world. How does one live out that citizenship? You do it by commitment. God, I commit my life to you. And, and how is that citizenship finally fully realized? It's by consummation. God comes and takes his people home to be with him. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, you are holy, and you are the King eternal. We pray that your kingdom, not our kingdom, would come through conversions, through our commitment to your kingdom, and we look forward to the glorious day of your appearing as you consummate history and usher in your eternal kingdom. Help us to be kingdom-oriented in the way we live so that we will honor you with our lives. Amen. Well, I think we're up to like the fourth P, which is the provision of prayer. See, once God is given his rightful place, he is the Father, he is the Holy God, once you have the proper perspective that God wants to be the kingdom God, now all of a sudden we start shifting our attention to what God can give us and what God desires to give us. This is a prayer when we say, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation. It literally takes care of every last single need you and I have. I mean, just think about this. Give us this day our daily bread relates to our bodies. Forgive us our sins relates to our souls. Lead us not into temptation relates to our spirit. But see, when God says, give us each day, or when we pray, give us each day our daily bread, we are saying that we trust God as the source to supply all the physical needs of our life. And then to affirm that he's going to take care of everything that we need. And it's probably good to remind you that God will take care and give you everything you need, but not everything you greed after. God takes care of your daily needs. Now notice, though, it says, I'm going to trust in God for my daily bread. The question is, do we pray for our daily needs? Do we take time to ask God to meet our physical needs each and every day, or do we at least give thanks for them? Now, some people might say grace before every meal. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let these gifts to us be blessed. But those prayers, even those kind of memorized prayers, can be just a sanctimonious way of saying, let's eat. My wife brought that one up the other day at home. I think I posted this on the Facebook, my Facebook page. And I think that day for lunch, I just said, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let these gifts to us be blessed. And she didn't quite get the one word correct, but she says, well, is that an example of a sanctimonious way of saying, let's eat? And to be, be very honest, it probably was. I'm hungry. Let's say this prayer, get it out of the way, so we can eat. Give us this day our daily bread. 
See, friends, if we don't ask God to give us what we need each and every day, and I'd say be specific about it, then we will gradually think then that what? That we can handle our daily needs. And that God only takes care of the serious stuff. I mean, God takes care of more than serious stuff. See, here's the danger in not praying for your daily bread. Pride swells up within you, and you subtly pull away from complete trust in God. Let's pray. Our Holy Father God, we desire to have you triumph as king in our lives, and we lean on you to provide for our physical needs. If it weren't for your provision, we would have nothing. What we do have is a gift from you. And so we choose to trust you for our daily bread every day so that we may grow in our relationship with you as we see you provide in ways we never thought possible. Amen. The next one is kind of a tough one, to be quite honest. In fact, I would tell you, this is one you ought to really think about before you ever pray it again. It says, forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. What you're asking is, God, I want you to forgive my sins in the same manner in which I forgive other people. That's kind of a dangerous prayer when you think about it. You know, it's my observation that one thing that troubles Christians more than anything else is probably guilt. We generally kick ourselves pretty good and we punish ourselves pretty relentlessly. But see, that's why we need to pray. We need to ask God to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, do you ever feel bad over things you've done? Yeah, probably. We all do. But you know Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Your sins are forgiven. The only one who condemns you is who? Satan. God never condemns you. God only forgives you. And we need to claim that and live that out without being paralyzed by guilt and shame. Now having said that, notice that Jesus gives us a limitation. He said, you ask for forgiveness. In fact, we did that today already. In our confession, we ask God to forgive our inability to do certain things, but God tacks something on here, and he says, you also need to forgive other people. You need to forgive other people. This ver verse teaches us that it's wrong to ask from God if you are not willing to cut some other people some slack as well. Let me ask you a few questions. I want you to think about this for a moment. Is there anyone who comes to your mind right now who is in need of your forgiveness? Anybody right now that you should probably go to and say, I forgive you for what you did to me. I forgive you for what you said about me or said to me. Have you been holding somebody captive? I mean, that's really what it is. By your forgive, lack of forgiveness, you are holding other people captive. Is there someone in need of grace? See, these are potent words. When we fail to forgive someone, we set ourselves up as what? As a higher judge than the judge himself, than God himself. Another way to say it is that our relationship with the Lord is never going to be completely right until our relationship with others is made right too. Let me give you a couple of Bible passages, one from Matthew 5. It tells us what we should do 
if somebody has something against us. Now, that's the flip side. Any of you know that there are people right now that have something against you? They're mad with you. They're upset with you. Here's what Matthew 5.23 says. If you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, you've come to church today, you've come to worship today, and there you remember that your brother, your brother or sister, has something against you, he said, leave your gift there at the front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. I remember preaching on that one time, and I happened to notice as I got to that point, and I said, you know, if you got a, if somebody's got a problem with you, you've got a problem with somebody else, you really ought to take care of it right now. And I happened to notice out of the corner of my eye, somebody on the side aisle got up and walked out of the church. And this was a pretty long church, you know, 100 feet from the back to the front step of the altar. The next service, I happened to look out again, and I noticed that guy was there. He'd gotten up, he'd left, but then he came back. And after church, he came, and he said, when you said that, I thought of my neighbor. My neighbor and I are not in a good relationship. There have been harsh words. He said, so I got up, I went home, I knocked on his door, and I apologized. And now I'm back with my gift my gift of worship, my gift of praise. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just the two of you. If he listens, you've won your brother over. Neat thing. I mean, have you been wronged by somebody lately? Have you sinned against anybody lately? Meet that person face to face, express yourself, let it go. I mean, most of us, I think, grossly underestimate how committed God is to building and maintaining a loving community. Now, before we pray again, I want you to take some time right now to do a forgiveness inventory. Ask God to bring someone to your mind right now that you have been withholding forgiveness from. And ask him also if you have wronged anybody else. And if the Holy Spirit actually brings a name to mind, I want you to determine right now to meet face-to-face -face this week and take care of it. And if face-to-face -face doesn't work, text them. If face-to-face -face doesn't work, call them on the phone. Skype them, whatever, but make it right. Let's pray. Our holy Abba Father, we submit to your reign in our lives by trusting you for our daily needs and by living as forgiven sinners without any fear of condemnation. Give us the courage, give us the humility to make things right with others by owning our sins and by cutting others some slack by giving them the same gift of grace that you have given us. Amen. Here's the last one, the protection of prayer. It says, and lead us not into temptation. Now the Greek word here translated temptation is, is a kind of a neutral word. It can refer to either as a test or a trial. It, the phrase probably really could read, and lead us not into trials or testings that can lead us to temptation. Lead into, and that into means into the power of or into the hands of. So here we're asking God to keep us from falling under the power of trials and temptations that we are not strong enough to handle on our own.
Now, the question is, would God answer a prayer like that? If you say, God, there's stuff out there, trials, temptations out there, I, I cannot resist them, help me, will God answer that prayer? The answer is, you bet. Let me read it to you, 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Now, I'm going to stop there. I could retire at about $1,000 a time of people who have actually come to my office to confess a sin that nobody else had ever done. Oh, pastor, I got to tell you, I did something. Oh, man, nobody else has ever done this before. And it's like, what? You tell them, I go, I did it two weeks ago. What? You know, sin is sin, folks. No, none of you have come up with a new one. I mean, it's, it's stuff been around since the beginning of time. But it says here, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, some of you are sitting out there and saying, man, how strong does he think I am? Because <laughs> he seems like he really allows a lot of stuff in my life. Okay, maybe he does. But there is no temptation. I don't care what it is whether it's to drink or smoke or have sex outside of marriage or whatever, there's no temptation that, that would come to you that God will not give you the power to handle, to walk away from, to say, no thanks, not me, not going to do it. It says, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, what is that way out? Well, it's different for everybody. Sometimes it means cutting friends loose. That's a way out. Sometimes it's not going back where you find temptation to be. Never go back there again. Sometimes it means developing a new relationship. It could mean all kinds of things. I'm just saying, friends, ask God to lead you away from whatever tempts you. When you're facing some enticement to sin, look for the way out because God is faithful and God will not leave you to face your temptations alone. You need to pray for his protection and keep your guard up. Let's close with prayer. Father God, you are arrayed in majestic splendor. You are close to us and yet you are wholly different and separate, separate from us. As we approach you, we're mindful of our sins that threaten to destroy us and those around us. We confess them and surrender to your royal reign in our lives. Give us everything we need for daily living. Enable us to forgive those who've wronged us and to show us the way of escape when we're faced with the temptations to trample your holiness in our thoughts or our words or our actions. We pray all of these many things in Jesus' most precious and powerful name. Amen.